You are listening to Take Back the Fight, a podcast that explores modern feminism in Canada and the digital age. I'm your host, Nora Loretto, and this podcast is based on a book that I wrote with the same name. This podcast is brought to you by Fernwood Publishing, and we are a proud part of the Harbinger Media Network. Episode 8, Ad Hoc Feminism. Ad hoc feminism isn't something that I came across being written about in those terms exactly. It's the way in which I describe so much of feminist action in the digital era. When I was preparing for this episode and I went back to the chapter in Take Back the Fight on ad hoc feminism in the digital age, I have to admit that I don't remember this chapter. (laughs) That's the funny thing about writing something as big as a book is that certainly I remember the content, but I, I don't remember at what point we decided to make this its own chapter. And it makes so much sense that it did become its own chapter because ad hoc feminism is everywhere. It's really become the norm of what feminist action looks like. And there are problems with that. And there are things that we need to be aware of, the limitations of ad hoc feminism, if we're going to be able to build power back into the feminist movement and have the kind of strength that we need to force the kind of change that we want to see, to build the kind of community that we want to build, or to provide the kind of services that we know are necessary. When I talk about ad hoc feminism, what I'm thinking about is feminism that starts with a hashtag or a viral moment or with someone calling an event or a rally. Those are all kinds of mobilization in the digital age. They rely on digital tools to get the word out very, very quickly, hope that enough people are moved into action or moved into taking action, and that things start to happen as a result of that spark. Mobilization is one part of activism. It's the kind of activism that gets people into the streets or that gets people to walk out of something or call their MP or write a letter or do something, do a one-off action. And it can help people build their skills. It can help people feel like they're less alone. It can help people feel like they have power, right? The first time that you close down a street, you realize, wow, that actually wasn't very difficult. But mobilization is also very ephemeral, it passes very quickly. And the second that that road reopens, the second that the, the, the MP has received your letter or you've signed that petition or the hashtag has gone as viral as it can, the moment has passed. And in the wake of that wave of time washing over your mobilization, what is left Is there something that is left that people can get involved in? Is there a space that is left where people can debate about the successes and the failures of the mobilization and what's next? Is there any sort of structure that will continue to exist to start building the the kinds of um, coalitions, the kinds of structures, finding the right kinds of individuals and the right kinds of jobs that we can actually build something? Or... Did it end the second that that action finished? 
The reason why ad hoc feminism has become so popular within the digital age is because of neoliberalism and neoliberalism forcing us onto these social media platforms to do activism means that our activism is going to be isolated. It's going to be atomized. And even if we're able to build something that has power beyond a single hashtag or a single event, the pressure that comes within the digital space is always trying to atomize and atomize and atomize because we're always interacting with these platforms as individuals. There is no collectivity in these social media platforms in the way that we engage with them because we're always engaging by ourselves. We have our own social media feeds. We don't know what the social media feeds of our closest friends even look like, let alone 10 people. We all have different ads. We all have different trends. We all have different things that will pop up based on what the algorithm thinks that we want to see. And that absolutely individualizes the way that we interact with these digital spaces. There's really no version of this in the real world. It's not as if we all walk around all kind of looking down the end of a long tube and whatever we manage to see at the end of that tube is our reality because even that is we're all still looking at the same reality ultimately at the end of that tube. But when we're looking at the world through the lens of social media or through the, the lens of digital organizing, there is an individualism that is inherent and, we, and, it, and it's invisibilized. And we so rarely talk about what happens between your mind, your expression of something into these platforms and then the diffusion of it on the other side and how different that is than thinking, expressing participating in um, a, a movement space. The results are different. The way that our sense is, is, is changed by these platforms is completely different. The ways that we might be interpreted or misinterpreted is totally different. And in the end of the day, the platforms are always current. They, are, they erase history, which makes mobilization very attractive and something more permanent like organization very, very difficult. In this episode, I'm going to talk about some of the biggest moments of ad hoc feminism, the promise that people thought that they held, what happened during the event, the debates that surrounded these events, and then what happened in the aftermath. Did anything change? Could have anything changed? And what must we do differently if we're going to try and sustain our movements and build power within them? Because this episode is going to be pretty critical of ad hoc feminism, I want to start by mentioning all of the advantages of ad hoc feminism. A lot of activists will say that social media and digital spaces have made organizing uh, easier in some ways. It's made it uh, more possible to reach people. Certainly, the use of different kinds of technologies can facilitate different kinds of experiences within our meeting spaces and um, can bring people together across large distances or other kinds of barriers that might otherwise not be able to or might be able to but can't because of an organization's financial limitations or whatever. And so that allows for the appearance of a really democratic space for decision-making, right? The commons is now online and it's accessible to everybody, 
it, well, everybody that has the internet, of course, that often doesn't really get mentioned too, too often. And that's a really important point. But for folks who are online, digital spaces allow for direct access to politicians, direct access to media. Neither of that is really all that possible. If you're doing real world organizing, it has to look quite different if you're going to try and reach those individuals. And it allows for organizing across borders uh, in a way that is also not possible in the quote unquote real world. Um, we can organize across borders that are impossible to get across and we're able to organize across borders that we can't afford to cross. And that both opens up organizing possibilities internationally, but also in Canada, uh, across regions, across provinces and across great distances. There's really exciting activism that can be done online. And I'm thinking specifically about the disability filibuster, which was a 24-hour-a-day for almost a week of actions taken by people opposing Bill C-7, Canada's expansion to medical assistance in dying. And this action was so cool because you could just go onto the feed at any time of the day or night, it didn't matter what time zone you were in, and you would catch either performances or poetry or panels or whatever. It was a really amazing example of activism facilitated by the digital world, but also that was made perfectly for COVID. There was activism that was made perfectly for this moment that we are existing in where gathering um, is either impossible or very, very difficult. People will say that they've met new friends online. I've certainly met new friends online. And broadening our networks because everybody is online usually has to happen there. And so that's also a very big positive that we are able to connect with people who we would never connect with before. Um, thanks to translation software, we're able to even communicate sometimes with people who don't speak the same language that we're speaking. And so, you know, there are a lot of advantages to these spaces. The reality, though, is that we're so imbued in these spaces that I think that we are pretty aware of the advantages. We experience the advantages every single day when we're online and when we're enjoying ourselves online. We know what the advantages of digital organizing can be because a lot of us have seen the way that digital organizing can enhance or even create a space that was just not possible or isn't possible in other forums. But just as digital organizing offers us a lot of possibilities to address different barriers that exist within society, digital organizing and ad hoc feminism also is just as able to reproduce social inequality, oppression, racism, colonialism, ableism. And I think that the case of the slut walks is perhaps the most interesting way to look at the possibilities of ad hoc organizing and the limitations of ad hoc organizing. And to think through the difference between something like creating the slut walks and the fight that feminists fought in Canada for abortion services. If you're not familiar with the slut walks, in 2011, which, I mean, feels like yesterday, but maybe you were only six in 2011. So, I mean, just trust me, it was only yesterday. In 2011... At York University Law School, there was something called the Safety Forum, where police officer Michael Sanguinetti was speaking. And he said, which became famous, quote, women should avoid dressing like sluts in order to not be victimized. It was a comment that is obviously extremely commonly held or believed by many, many people. 
When this happened, Heather Jarvis and Sonia Barnett reacted by creating something called Slut Walk. Slot Walk was supposed to protest Sanguinetti's words and to reclaim the word slut and to remind people that obviously sexual assault has nothing to do with the way that someone is dressed. Sexual assault is the violent manifestation of patriarchy, capitalism and colonialism. And so the march was uh, planned to, to reach at Queen's Park and it went global in a way that the organizers did not at all expect. It was everywhere. And the slut walks became the international news firestorm that many people will remember. Feminists took the streets all around the world, not just to protest the comments made by the cop, but Also, to put the issue into local terms and into a local context, and people took to the streets. Selma James, who's a feminist writer and whose major work in the 1970s, arguing for wages for so-called women's work at home, wrote about the slut walks. And she said, quote, this is the new women's movement born of student protests and Arab revolutions tearing up the past before our very eyes. It has a lot of work to do and it is not afraid. And remember, 2011, the slut walks were happening just in the shadow of the Arab Spring. Feminist writer Jessica Valenti argued in June 2021 in the Washington Post that the slut walks were, quote, the most successful feminist action of the past 20 years, unquote. And that, again, quote, the success of slut walks does herald a new day in feminist organizing, one when women's anger begins online but takes to the street, when a local step makes global waves, and when one feminist action can spark debate, controversy, and activism that will have lasting effects on the movement. Instead of young women being organized by established groups, slut walks have young women organizing themselves, something I believe makes these women more likely to stay involved once the protest is over, unquote. When I was writing the chapter, it would have been in 2019, and I remember coming across Valenti's comments and looking back at what she thought was the new feminist movement, looking specifically at the slut walks, I thought it was so funny, this idea that the vestiges of the past, these old ossified organizations are gone and young women are shedding them for new organizing that I, that has no way of continuing after it's finished. But I mean, that, that wasn't on Valenti's mind when she was writing this, that this actually will make them more likely to stay involved in activism after the slut walk wave uh, had come and gone. You can hear the hope, right, in in Valenti's writing, just, oh, my gosh, here is the moment that feminism will have a resurgence and it will look different and it will look modern and it will be deeply tied up with the digital age. That was not an uncommon belief related to the slut walks because they did explode around the world. There were events held all over the place and celebrities were getting involved and they seemed to have tapped into a spirit that nothing had tapped into like it. For Valenti to say that these were the most significant feminist actions in the last 20 years, you know, you go back and think, well, 2011, back up, 2001, 1991, were they really the most important thing that happened in the feminist world? 
I, I mean, I think I would probably disagree with that, but certainly they sparked a global phenomenon like nothing before. And it wasn't just the popularity of the slut walks or the message of the slut walks. It was actually far more to do with the fact that in 2011, social media was hitting a point of ubiquity where, where everybody seemingly was online and things really could be organized in a different way thanks to the internet. And if you're a left-wing person involved in activism, you will remember, and if you're a certain age, you will remember in 2011 how many people put all of their stock in thinking that the online organizing was going to save everything from the labor movement to certain political parties. And of course, that's not what happened. I don't know how many people stayed involved after the slut walks in the way that Valenti had hoped. Certainly, it was a radicalizing moment for a lot of feminists. And there were a lot of individuals who got involved for the first time in something like that, thanks to the slut walks. There were also some very important critiques of the slut walks. And those critiques identified both the ephemeral nature and problems with the slut walks and also the incredible whiteness that was wrapped into these events. What they trigger is not just these global movements around the world, but also this incredible discussion and debate about white feminism and what does what does sluttiness mean and what does it mean reclaiming to be a slut and what is the role of police in all of this? When you have ad hoc feminism, it means that people become the leaders by default. The person who has the idea is the leader. The person who made the hashtag is the leader or the founder or whatever. And there's nothing around that individual to allow them to navigate things like accountability or debates or refining your message or whatever. And this is the key problem with ad hoc organizing. It replicates societal oppression if the person who is calling the action or doing the thing is someone who's in a position of relative power or in a position of relative privilege. And it's not to say that these individuals should never be leading feminist action, but without the support of a movement structure or organization or collective or whatever behind them, it's very, very difficult to then extract yourself if there's like an issue that starts to arise and you either don't get it or maybe your politics are not good on it or you find yourself like Jarvis and Barnett did in this international firestorm that both assumed that there was more thought put into the organizing than there perhaps was, but also that made really important and legitimate critiques. At the time, Barnett was quoted by BlogTO talking about how they had invited former Toronto police chief, former G20 guy, former National Public Safety Minister Bill Blair to actually speak at the event at Toronto Police Headquarters. Um, and she told BlogTO, we hope he accepts. Now, this wasn't the primary focus of, of the slut walks. The slut walks, of course, had a, a link to police because of the original comment. Um, and they weren't calling for police reform or, or anything like that. But, you know, I guess probably they thought, well, if we're going to stop at Toronto Police Headquarters, let's see if we can get the police to talk. You know, things, a lot of things have changed since 2011. So who knows if that would still be the instinct that, that they would have had or other organizers would have today. But certainly it doesn't help when you don't have that kind of 
structure behind you to say, whoa, 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 do we want the police involved or is this actually a bigger issue? Are the police fundamentally part of the problem rather than we need to get a few bad apples out of there? That proximity to the police and the uh, and the way in which sluttiness was talked about being reclaimed, it raised a lot of criticism from individuals who identified the whiteness inherent in the way that the slut walks were being talked about. Harsha Walia wrote something that I remember reading at the time and that I included in my book because I thought it hit just such the perfect note of explaining the problem with the slut walks and the way that they had been conceived. She wrote that she didn't, quote, feel the whole reclaim slut thing. In the post 9-11 climate, the focus on a particular vision of sexy, positive feminism runs the risk of further marginalizing Muslim women's movements who are hugely impacted by the, quote, reasonable accommodation, unquote, debate and state policies against the niqab. This marginalization has, at least in part, been legitimized through an imperialist feminist discourse that imposes certain ideas of gender liberation and perpetuates the myth that certain cultural religious identities are inherently antithetical to women's rights, unquote. Harsha wasn't the only one to criticize the slut walks. The Crunk Feminist Collective uh, also had a very pointed criticism. Uh, they wrote, but sluttiness and slut shaming around sexuality are in fact central to white women's experiences of sexuality. So to start a movement around that word is to inherently place white women and their experiences at the center. To actually reclaim slut, however much one has been slut shamed, is to have the power to work within a universe of multiple meanings for which both committed chastity and casual coitus and everything in between are understood as sexual options. And Jesse Daniels, who's an American professor who recently wrote a book called Nice White Ladies, also zeroed in on this. Uh, she quoted Ora Bogato, who's a reporter at the time with the Center for Investigative Reporting. Daniels wrote, quote, Bogato was among the first to call out the privileged position inherent in a political movement whose goal is focused on, quote, regaining a trustworthy relationship with police, while immigrant women, black and brown women, poor women and transgender women, whether born in the U.S. or not, are presumed to be sex workers targeted as, quote, sex offenders, unquote, and are routinely abused by police with impunity and their deaths ignored. And so here you have a group of organizers who are white and who instantly come up with this extremely catchy phrase, the slut walks. And it goes viral thanks to social media. It, it becomes a global phenomenon. And there's no internal way for the organizers to be able to course correct when it starts to become obvious that the whiteness inherent in the mobilization is a problem. And they get called out. There were a lot of open letters written to the organizers. And when I was writing this book, I, I connected with Heather Jarvis. So looking back, you know, however many years that was, almost a decade from the slut walks. And she was telling me that the organizers were confronted with an event that went global in a way that they did not expect. They thought it was going to be a Toronto event to condemn the Toronto police, invite the Toronto police as well. But it was this crash course in white feminism that they uh, didn't expect, they didn't anticipate. Jarvis was telling me that she credits the criticisms of Slutwalk for making her a more effective organizer. Um, and I wrote, she said, thanks to the reactions, she's more aware of the, pit, of the pitfalls inherent in organizing that is deeply influenced by a white feminist frame, intentionally or not. And slow walks evolve in Toronto. By 2017, they're specifically organizing with Maggie's, the Toronto Sex Workers Action Project. 
uh, to make sure that sex workers' voices are centered on uh, around the slut walks. But by then, the phenomenon peters out. Now, it becomes this useful vehicle to talk about uh, sex workers' rights and violence faced by, by sex workers. And so in that sense, it's very positive. But the mobilization of the slut walks, it doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't actually have anywhere to go. And this is where ad hoc feminism becomes so confusing, because when you instantly are asked to think of a feminist action or to do something feminist, you probably immediately think of taking to the streets. And for good reason, because we should be taking to the streets whenever there's an injustice that happens. But the digital era has told us that this is now what feminist action looks like because it is so easy to ignore the demands of ad hoc feminism. Politicians don't have to pay attention. Business leaders can certainly dismiss what people are saying because it's almost operating like a fad. It will run its course. And once it's run its course, there's either nothing or very little left that we can use to organize through to create the kind of social movement pressure that is necessary to force the changes that we're calling for. The reason for why that's a problem is because it is so easy for politicians to ignore these actions. The second the moment has passed, there's no more pressure on them to do anything. And, and something like the slut walks, beyond talking about sexual assault and how what you wear has nothing to do with whether or not you will be sexually assaulted, it wasn't calling for any fundamental policy change. Um, and even in seeking the participation of the police, it suggested that, that the police can be reformed to not be a misogynistic and racist and violent force, which, of course, I mean, that's the core of policing. You're not going to be able to reform that out. The slot walks were the first really big moment of the internet and organizing. Then comes Me Too, which I talk about in, a, in an earlier episode. So make sure you're listening to all the episodes to catch all of the information. <laughs> I'm not going to talk about Me Too because I have already talked about it. But after Me Too comes another massive mobilization, mostly in the United States. But I'm going to talk about the way that it happened in Canada, which was the Canadian Women's Marches. In January 2017, Donald Trump was inaugurated as the president of the United States of America. And feminists across the United States used the day of his inauguration to, to be a massive protest, and it became called the Women's March. That probably made sense. In fact, that made total sense. You had this misogynist that was about to become president of the United States and feminists had to do something. And they decided to have marches all across the United States with the largest one culminating in Washington, D.C. And as a result of organizing these marches, people did learn new skills. Coordinators and leaders learned the skills to go on to become other kinds of organizers. And it put feminist issues front and center in the media. So that was all very positive. In Canada, they also organized women's marches, which always struck me as a bit strange. And you'll remember in the introduction that it was actually the women's marches in Canada that, that was the inspiration of this entire project. In 2017, the women's march happens and there are thousands of people all across Canada protesting for feminism. Organizers pop up all over Canada and they 
organize local events in solidarity with what's happening in Washington. Though there's no focus on what Canada should do with a new president. There's no demands that Justin Trudeau refuse to meet with Donald Trump. The Women's March has become this kind of kitchen sink location for all issues that all feminists might be concerned about. And so the photos, as you can imagine, just cover the gamut of of feminist issues. That lack of focus might not have been a problem if they were if this event was being coordinated by many organizations that would then put the multiple demands that feminists have into action. But without that overarching thing, the march organizers themselves become the de facto national organizing committee of this mass mobilization for something. Organizers at the Women's March Canada, uh, they talked to journalists and they didn't see these marches as being the necessary protests that that we needed. They didn't see these as expressions of discontent against the status quo that was aiming to change something. Uh, quoted in Flair, one of the organizers said, quote, saying that it's not a protest was important. Did you get that? Saying that the women's marches were not a protest was important. I'll go back to the quote. As a team, we banned the P word from our vocabulary because we want to be constructive. We don't want to be portrayed as complaining and whining. And certainly that's not what we're doing. We want to be moving things forward. We want things to change. We want dialogue. We want debate. And we want progress. We can't do that if we're criticizing because the other side just shuts down. In another article, the same organizer says this was not meant to be a political or politicized event. We've engaged people on a level like never before with that level. And with that level of engagement, you can't help but harness it. You have to. It's our job to do that now. There is a sharp lack of understanding of the difference between action to change something and action for action's sake. And the Women's March Canada organizing team were ad hoc feminists. They said that they wanted to organize something and they organized it. There was no obvious ability to probably do the political education that explains, like, why you do want to have a protest or why, of course, you want to be critical. Like, there's no such thing as changing anything if you're not criticizing something, obviously. Um, And then to even be concerned that someone would portray you as whining rather than saying, no, 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 we are taking our space. We are calling for X, Y and Z. It pointed to how politically green the organizers were and that there was no one present or around them that could help orient the organizers into some sort of more sophisticated analysis about the point of these marches. One of the signs for me that I was most concerned by was just how comfortable federal cabinet ministers seemed to feel at the marches themselves. And it just had this massive cognitive dissonance because either they're protesting Donald Trump and they don't want their government to have anything to do with Donald Trump, which would have been quite um, significant had that been the case, which of course it was not. Or they're protesting themselves as literal members of cabinet who could instantly enact feminist policy if they wanted to, if the political will will was there. But it was much more politically uh, popular for them to just show up at a rally and say, yeah, we support feminism as if like that's a that's meaningful, like that's not a meaningful way to engage with feminism. After the marches, nothing really happens. Uh, There is a little bit of organizing that goes into trying to turn the women's marches into some sort of 
organization that can withstand a flashpoint after flashpoint. But it peters out. You know, in 2018, there were women's marches. That was the spark for this book where I was very frustrated that there was no mention of Islamophobia specifically and the victims of the shooting at the mosque in Quebec City, which, of course, happened just like the week right after um, the women's march, the 2017 women's march. And um, the organizers kind of all disappear. Like there is no, nothing gets translated from the women's marches themselves into anything more permanent. Ad hoc feminism demonstrated its limits that after these mobilizations, if you're not organizing to change something specifically, it quite likely will vanish. Thinking about ad hoc feminism and comparing it to the struggle that it took to win the right to have abortion in Canada is very, very helpful to illustrate the, the, the problems with ad hoc feminism. The struggle for abortion rights was a multi-decade struggle that involved thousands and thousands of feminists, and it took a lot of different kinds of strategies and tactics. The tactics included things like educational sessions and flyering and picketing and building coalitions so that you had a lot of different people from a lot of different parts of Canada doing the same kind of work oriented towards the federal government. And it also included breaking the law and civil disobedience, breaking the law both uh, through acts of civil disobedience and protest, but also all the way up to doctor. Morgenthaler opening clinics to provide abortion that was illegal, like like the ultimate way to break the law, which was literally breaking the law that they that they were opposing. And that organizing to win the fight against abortion restriction, it's not popularly known anymore. And I think that there's, you know, at least what two generations of feminists who don't appreciate or who might not know the story of how much work it took to force the federal government to finally drop restrictions to abortion access. In Take Back the Fight, I describe this struggle and I write, they had organized for decades, but crystallizing their actions into a coalition where groups were able to come together based around a specific campaign was what would push the movement towards its ultimate success five years later. A branch of the Canadian Abortion Rights Action League in Manitoba played a critical role in helping the Winnipeg Morgenthaler Clinic. Ellen Kruger was one of the founders. In 10,000 Roses, she said that they knew that it wouldn't be enough for a few people to demand change. Quote, we had labor people, health people, women's movement people, academics, you name the sector, we had a group. From the time that that clinic opened on May 5th, 1983, all of us were blown away by how that movement grew. I've never seen anything like it, and I don't know whether I ever will again. And then my words, through meetings, information pickets, blocking protesters at abortion clinics, court challenges, mass demonstrations, fundraising, research and civil disobedience, feminists created the, the social conditions for Canada's abortion laws to be struck down in 1988. Each action sought out new supporters, built social consensus, challenged Canada's laws, and most importantly, gave women access to abortion on demand. Had the campaign been organized around one-off events or to target specific flashpoints related to abortion, they would have achieved little more than raise awareness. It was through the careful and coordinated broad-based organizing that the abortion struggle was able to win. And importantly, it offered people who may not have been connected to feminist organizing a location where they could get involved. So think about how far we have come from that kind of organizing where an individual in 1986, let's say, who wanted to get involved uh, to fight against restrictive abortion access 
rather than saying, I'm going to just call an event, I'm just going to make a hashtag, I'm going to declare that tomorrow or next week, we're going to have a march. Instead would say, I think that there's something already happening. I will contact this organization and say, how do I get involved? Or I will contact this local group and say, when's the next information picket? Or when's the next educational or next event? Or what can I do? And so rather than becoming an instant leader through ad hoc feminism, you become an instant activist by networking and meeting other activists who can help you navigate the world of activism and social change. The latter case allows for movements to actually build and grow and thrive. And it also doesn't put the pressure on individuals to be the person all the time, right? There's a reason why people talk about burnout all the time right now and why burnout does plague activists because we're always trying to start things. We're always the ones who are like making the hashtags and hoping things go viral and hoping that through this tweet or that video or this event, things will change. We are shoveling water into the sea through these tactics. And what we need to learn from the the history of feminist action in Canada is that it takes sustained and, and intentional organizing. The moment that an individual decides they're going to take action, there are two options in front of them. One, they're going to do it all and they're going to try and declare something and they're going to have to become the de facto organizer. Or two, they're going to find a way to get involved with things that are already happening. The second option is a lot easier. It's a lot more humane. It doesn't demand so much of individuals, of their time, of their cleverness, of their connections. And importantly, it then brings them into a space with other people to then build that important community. It's only through doing that can we change anything. And we have to keep in mind every time that the pressure comes for us to do things in an ad hoc way, think about all of the things that we've lost and then all of the things we need to rebuild to make it so that ad hoc organizing isn't as attractive anymore, that there are sustainable ways for us to organize that will give organizers and, and activists everything they need rather than making them feel like Everything is up to them again. That's your episode for this week. Take Back the Fight, the podcast was hosted, written, produced, and edited by me, Nora Loretto. Music is by me too, except for this, which is Garam Chai by General Khan. If you like what you hear, make sure that you share this podcast with everybody in your office and everyone who used to work in your office and everyone who you think might someday also work in your office. This podcast is funded by Fernwood Publishing, and we are a proud part of the Harbinger Media Network. You can check out all of Harbinger's progressive podcasts at www.harbingermedianetwork.com. I'm earnest. I bring the heat to a tea, guaranteed. Garam chai in my thermos.